Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Dharma Toolkit podcast with me, Chandra Dasa. And we are here for another episode of Dharma Goodness with a couple of members of our team, one of whom you haven't met before and our special guest who you will meet in a little minute. First of all, I hope you're all doing well. I think this is, what, week 10, week 11 for some people of the lockdown. Depending on where you are, there's all sorts of other things going on as well. It's quite a sombre time in some ways in the world. And we hope you've got more or less what you need to feel safe and well and at least relatively secure in your environment. And if you don't, we hope you're aware that people are bearing you in mind wherever you are all around the world, which is one of the main features of this podcast, just trying to connect up an international Dharma community and bring stories and voices that help frame your own practice, your own sense of what you belong to. This is a special podcast that we do every so often to herald the arrival of one of our home retreats, which is coming up beginning on June the 12th. It's called Meditating in the Mandala, an embodied approach to awakening. And we'll meet Tejananda in a little minute, who's the guide for the week. He's going to be guiding us through a structured week of practice. First, I want to say hello to our team today, starting with, as ever, my good friend and colleague, Sadaya Sihi, over in Dublin. You can't see on Zoom, but her background is different, which is very exciting if you're stuck on Zoom all day. Hi, Sadaya Sihi. How are you doing? Yeah, it's only different for you, but it's actually, it's the same room I'm in, just from a different angle. You could say a lot about that, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, I'm well. It's roasting here at the moment in Dublin. So I'm just sitting here taking of ice cream and looking forward to getting into this conversation. I'm also looking forward to Aparajita joining our podcasting team because I believe that's superstardom in his mind. <laughs> so welcome to superstardom, Aparajita. <laughs> we'll meet Aparajita in a little second and we can tell you all about his delightful reluctance to appear on camera on audio, but we finally bagged him. We made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So I see being roasting in Dublin at the risk of stereotyping is not something I've heard people say very often. Is the attitude to lockdown easing in Dublin? Is the arrival of good weather affecting how people are engaging with social distancing, etc.? Well, it's hard to tell really when you're inside a lot. I have to go what it's said in the newspapers and it does seem that there's more people on the move. But next week, there's going to be a further easing of the lockdown and it's looking promising in terms of the numbers of people who are being infected and who are dying are dropping significantly. So that's that's definitely encouraging. It's good to hear. Yes, so now I suppose we should have a sort of fanfare for this because you've no idea how hard it's been to get this man to come on a podcast, but we finally managed. Here he is all the way from England. Big drum roll, Apparagita. Well, thank you very much. Yes, I live about an hour off from Manchester in darkest Lancashire, UK. Yeah, I'm not a media star type, really. Do I need to get an agent? I'm not sure, but I'll do my best anyway. Life in lockdown is good. Being a Buddhist should prepare us well for such things. And I think it does. I think also having a slightly sociopathic nature like mine suits, you know, not having to go out and meet people and all that. So you're very lucky to have me today to actually talk with other humans. You can edit all that out if you like. (laughs) Don't call us Apresta. We'll call you (laughs) after the agent. I'll say a little bit about my situation too, because I'm aware that there's an awful lot going on that is of a more serious nature, particularly where I live, just to try and keep a broad sense of what's happening for people. As usual, I'm here in the United States on the East Coast in the little sleepy town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which feels quite a strong situation at the moment. Not far away in Boston, about an hour away, four hours away in New York City. Not only is the pandemic raging, but there's extreme violence every day, every night mainly from the police towards peaceful protesters around the very painful issue of systemic racism in the United States and the breakdown of government and things like social contracts with people. And it's certainly part of the backdrop to my own awareness of working with a team on stuff online to do with the Dharma, which of course on one level feels very relevant, but on another level there are some good questions alive about, well, what is it we're doing as Buddhists to respond to the fires of suffering in the world? I've got a hunch that today's conversation and in fact the material that we're going to be introducing is actually quite deeply relevant. But nonetheless, it's good to draw out that it's happening against the backdrop of quite a lot of upheaval and unrest and active suffering for people. I'm quite glad to be welcoming our special guest today, our retreat leader, 
teaching Handa, who I was thinking earlier today, I've known on and off now for quite a long time. We've been in a particular meeting together for years and we used to often have late night conversations, I remember, after the final event of the day, sitting having tea and toast in various refectories. Actually, his main contribution to our community has been a sustained love for, passion for, and excellence in meditation teaching. Sustained over decades at this point, someday exemplifying what it's like to give their life to the practice of meditation, the practice of the Dharma, and just making that available with huge generosity of heart consistently for many years, which is really why he said yes so readily to our request for help with home retreats. So welcome to you, Tejananda. I hope you're doing well, wherever you are in the lockdown. Yeah, I'm doing very well. So I'm at Vajraloka. We're, of course, closed to retreats. Vajraloka, by the way, is in North Wales, which is uncharacteristically warm and sunny, just like Dublin at the moment. But we believe that the traditional Welsh weather is coming across tomorrow, (laughs) sadly. Anyway, we're doing pretty well. There's six of us here, the team at Vajraloka, the community. And, you know, in many ways, if you're having a lockdown, there couldn't be a better place to be, you know, because we're in the middle of the countryside. I love cycling and running and I can get out. I've just been for a 77 kilometre ride earlier today. Obviously, we're very aware of the lockdown and we're very aware of what's going on in the world. And, you know, we're very keen to get back to doing what we do here, which is running retreats and courses in meditation. Yeah, so Vajraloka has been the primary meditation centre for Triratna since, well, actually, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Vajraloka's opening this year. It was set up by Sangrachta, at least at his wish to just come and meditate. It was a meditating community, but it wasn't very long before Vajraloka started doing lead retreats and teaching retreats. And without sort of wishing to blow our own trumpet too much, I think a lot of the meditation teaching methods, which are now kind of all across Triratna, many of them did originate from here, especially in the early days when Kamala Shield was here, Vajradhaka, Dharmananda, and you know, many other people who have had quite an impact on meditation teaching in Triratna. In a sense, it's a lineage. What we're doing here is we're primarily concerned with people who are already somewhat experienced through to very experienced meditators and dharma practitioners. And our concern is to offer ways for people to take their practice further. So we're not teaching the basic practices. We do if we have to. If people turn up and they don't know those practices, then we will teach them. But that's very, very rarely the case. So you know, we are concerned with helping people go deeper. And that's really the concern of this theme that we're going to be doing on this home retreat, the Dynamic Mandala. One of the things I'm aware of, obviously, in the lockdown is that we can take advantage of online stuff, Zoom, to have you available to everyone rather than people who can get to deepest whales and brave the weather. I know that you also do take the Vajraloka approach and your own approach to practice out into the world. You've got quite a relationship, haven't you, with the West Coast and the United States and setting up conditions where people can go deeply into meditation elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I could say be a meditation teacher and see the world because I've been going to San Francisco and the West Coast for many years now, 20 years probably. And New Zealand, I go to Sweden and other European centres and other centres within the UK. You know, I love going off and doing weekend workshops, which recently has often been on this theme. I do get around a bit and you know, so do other members of the team at Vajraloka. Apraj, have you been on retreat with Tejananda? Yes, indeed, a number of times. And I mean, it's probably not the place to say this with him actually here, as it were, but I'm a bit of a fanboy of Tejananda, and I would certainly go on retreats when he was leading them. I really value Tejananda's clarity and, to be honest, brevity. You know, he's able to communicate things quite concisely and with good humour, which I think is always obviously a very high value in life. So I highly recommend him and I'm excited to hear how people get on with the retreat this time. So without further ado, it'd be good to introduce people to the retreat, Tejananda. Home retreats, for people who are not familiar, is a kind of evolving format at the moment, like everything else that's being spun up on the fly as the weeks of the pandemic go by, trying to find out what people find useful. Essentially, we provide a structured week of practice for anyone to engage with. Hitherto, it's been there and complete, but you can engage with it in your own time. And that will still be a strong feature of the next home retreat. But for this meditation retreat, essentially, with Tejananda on the day, dynamic mandala we're going to try something a bit different which is having a live event every day 
Tejananda as being a total hero and he's going to show up every day for a week and invite you into the space of a retreat with him and explore in a kind of workshop format, something quite concrete, which is an actual meditation practice, but also something interactive and alive and participatory. And hopefully that's going to approximate a bit more to the normal, if I can use that word, experience of going on retreat at a retreat center physically with other beings. So having that dual element is going to be fantastic. Tejananda, could you say a little bit to us about why this image of the dynamic mandala, which is super interesting and evocative and a bit intriguing? And then how does that relate to the idea of an embodied approach to awakening? Okay, so a little bit of background to this is based around the Jiratna system of practice, which has five aspects. The way in which Sangrashtra introduced them in a talk in 1978, he talked about integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and just sitting. Later, another way of talking about just sitting was introduced in one of the papers that Sabuti and Sangrashtra co-wrote, and that is receptivity or spiritual receptivity. I generally just refer to it as receptivity. And I'm not quite sure which paper it was, but in one of those papers, Sabuti arranged these in a mandala pattern. But it had occurred to me way before that, that you could see them as a mandala. Now, a mandala basically is a circular pattern with something at the center. In the case of Buddhist mandalas, what's at the center is awakening, enlightenment, if you like, the goal, the ultimate, however you want to express that. And around it are aspects of the way in which it manifests. So there's a mandala which is quite familiar, uh, a traditional mandala which is quite familiar in Jirantla because Sangrashta talked about it quite often. And that is the mandala of the five Buddhas, which actually I've found relates to the qualities of our system of practice. Now, I'm not going to go into that on this retreat. I do a retreat called Simply Being, which goes into specifically the relationship between the Buddhas, the wisdoms of the Buddhas, and the qualities that we're cultivating in our system of practice. What I've done is I've extracted from that the aspect which is just to do with the five aspects of our system of practice. And I'm primarily dealing with those from the point of view of meditation. They can be extended in many ways into other aspects of our lives, but being more concerned with meditation, that's what I'm going into. Now, a couple of things. We don't often talk about the system of practice when we're first introducing people to how to meditate. In fact, you know, I quite regularly have people turning up here who don't really know much about it. So I won't explain all this now, but I will, as we go through the individual introductions to each aspect, just explaining how I'm going to treat it. What's the dynamic mandala? I actually have another way of talking about it, which is the integrated mandala, because this approach is an integration of all five aspects of this system of practice or this system of meditation. We start with integration, but integration continues throughout. We go from integration, then we integrate positive emotion into that, then we integrate spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. And finally, we stop integrating and we just, well, you could say we just be, we simply be, and that's just sitting, which is the center of the mandala. That's the basic structure. It's dynamic insofar as we are doing that process of integration. We're moving through them rather than just say, for integration, doing the mindfulness of breathing. In fact, I'm not really going to be talking much about the mindfulness of breathing at all, because there's another aspect of this which is dynamic, which is that it's based on the living energy of the body. Now, the living energy of the body is sometimes referred to as the soma. The soma is a way of talking about that. Somatic meditation is a thing, you could say, and it's certainly a thing which I've become very, very keen on in the last 10 years or so. So we're going to approach these five aspects and integrating them dynamically through the body, primarily. This is mainly a practice of the body, not separate from the mind, but if you like, the mind is part of the body. And primarily, this is about getting into our immediate experience of the body and then seeing how it relates to those five principles, which I will draw out as we go through it. I'm just very interested in, you mentioned bhavana, abhavana, and contrived and uncontrived awareness. I don't know if you could say a little bit more about it or if this is getting off the point. <laughs> so 
we've got four aspects of the mandala of the system of practice, which are integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth. They're all about cultivation. They're all about bhavana. Bhavana means cultivation. Yeah, so the most familiar way in which we use that term is in terms of metta-bhavana, which is the cultivation of love. But the mindfulness of breathing is also a bhavana practice. It's a practice of cultivation. And many of the insight practices which come under spiritual death, likewise. Now, I'm going to have to say a bit more about spiritual rebirth and the way in which I'm going to contextualize that in the dynamic mandala. But generally, spiritual rebirth in the order, at least, is embodied by sadhana or visualization of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva and mantra recitation and so forth. Well, that has bhavana aspects, but that also leads more directly into non-bhavana or abhavana, what it would be in Pali or Sanskrit, which is non-cultivation. And this is really, really important. There's cultivation practice, and it's important to cultivate and develop qualities. But there also comes a point in every practice, and Sangrachna made this point quite clearly in the original talk about a system of meditation, there comes a point in which you just stop, you let go, you just sit, you no longer cultivate, and you just allow whatever happens to happen. And he emphasized that there should be a bit of that just sitting at the beginning of any bhavana practice and a bit of that just sitting at the end of any bhavana practice. This is something which I do emphasize because I think it's really, really valuable. So that's just in terms of doing, say, the mindfulness of breathing. You start with some just sitting, and I'll explain the reason for that when we come on to the actual thing. But we start with some just sitting. We do the practice, and then at the end, we just let go. We let go of making any effort. We let go of trying to get anywhere or do anything. And it's very often at that point, if you can really let go of the practice, that if you like, the fruit of the practice spontaneously emerges. There's something that I call the final bell syndrome, which is that at the end of a meditation, when the final bell goes and people stop making an effort, I mean, I've often heard it when I do meditation reviews with people. When the bell went, suddenly I was in such and such a state, you know, and it was really great. So these terms sound a bit kind of technical. That's basically what bhavana and abhavana mean. It means cultivation and non-cultivation, respectively. It's really fascinating to hear just that sense again of why the mandala and the circular nature of a pattern is a very beautiful way to come at this because you've already got the entry point of integration and the sort of exit point of receptivity starting to blur into each other quite nicely. So I can see why you'd want to do that. But for the benefit of people listening, let's work through them stage by stage. So integration as a word, I suppose actually when I hear it, I'm aware of the psychological background to it in the West with Carl Jung, etc., talking about the integration of the psyche. But it sounds slightly technical. So maybe you could say something about the experience of integration and both the cultivation and the non-cultivation of integration. Well, in the way that Sengrash talked about it, integration is about gathering together our scattered energies. This is quite basic and important stuff. We've got the monkey mind or the butterfly mind, whatever you want to call it. We are all over the place. You know, so his basic point was that we need to gather or integrate those scattered energies. But also, if we can gather them and focus them, then basically we can go deeper into meditation practice. If we're focused, we're integrated. The way that I would use it, I'd probably say focus more than integration. But that's what it's about. It's about capacity to focus. So one of the most important things, which I think will come out in the course of this homagery, is that there's a point which I call basic presence, which means that we're basically present in our experience. Simply that. The traditional term for it is upachara samadhi, access concentration, it's often referred to as. And that's a point at which basically distractions have gone into abeyance for the time being. This kind of basic presence is when we're present in our experience and we're present to whatever we're focusing on. So if we're focusing on the breath, we're present in the experience of the breath or in the experience of the body, or we're present in the actuality of love, of metta, from this basic presence, we can open out in a way to any kind of meditation whatsoever, including just sitting, including that which is in the center of the mandala. 
In terms of the way that I'm approaching integration, generally, when people come to Vajralok or come on my workshops, wherever I go, they are experienced. So they know the mindfulness of breathing. They've been practicing the mindfulness of breathing and the other basic practices that we teach in Triratna. And my concern is to check that people are actually experiencing, for instance, in the case of mindfulness of breathing, they are actually experiencing the breath and not partly making it up mentally, making up their experience mentally. I will do some exercises on the first day in which I just take people into that. But what's really, really important is to realize that the mindfulness of breathing is a body meditation. The breath isn't something separate from our body experience. It is part of our body experience. So my concern in terms of this theme, the dynamic mandala, is not so much to go into the mindfulness of breathing, but to go more into our experience of the body and just discovering more what our body actually is. Yeah. Now, for me, for years, I mean, for many years, I thought meditation was all about the mind. And when I heard about people teaching body-based meditation, it was like, oh, that sounds a bit boring. But <laughs> I've woken up to the fact that the body is absolutely fundamental to meditation. And so I'm just going into this in an embodied way, the whole thing, but particularly with integration, which is where we start with the body. And presumably for anyone listening to this who thinks, oh my goodness, but what about the breath? That's the traditional way of doing it. Well, of course, the breath is in the body. They're not separate things. Yeah. I mean, definitely I will refer to the breath a lot because the breath is an aspect of our body experience, but it's not all of it. I was very struck when I was revisiting the retreat material that you talk quite a bit, you know, the distinction between mind and body. And if our mind is our sixth sense, we give it a disproportionate amount of attention. And one of the things was I noticed you really drew out this idea of awareness, but moving moving away from conceptualizing and using our imagination. So often we talk about the breath, we're actually thinking about it rather than conceptualizing about it. Mm. I just found that a very helpful distinction. Mm. I could say a bit about that. Mind and body, we tend to sort of see things in dualistic terms. Well, we do. I mean, that's a way of talking about the nature of not being awake, not being enlightened. We see things dualistically, we see things separately. But we do tend to identify, and I think this is especially true of you know what we might call Western culture, we tend to identify very much with the mind. I want to emphasize that there is nothing wrong with the mind. We're not trying to literate the mind or get rid of it. But the mind, it tends to be, well, you could say it's out of control. Not that we're trying to control it, but it's just like it runs amok. It just goes on and on. We've got this term proliferation, mental proliferation, which is obsessive thought. It's emotionally driven thought, which is very, very painful. But most people can't stop. Now, that's one reason why people come to meditation, because they want a bit of peace of mind. Now, that's all very well. But if you just sit, even if you hear the instructions for the mindfulness of breathing, if you just sit there and try and experience the breathing from the perspective of the mind, you won't actually experience the breathing. You'll experience an idea about the breathing. And this is something that I will go into in the form of a short exercise during the retreat. We need to experientially discover that, well, there are all these other sense fields apart from the mind. The mind, in Buddhist terms, is a sense field. And as I say, we're not trying to get rid of the mind any more than we're trying to get rid of hearing or smelling or tasting or any other faculty that we have. But we're recognizing, and this is one of the fundamental insights of Buddhism, that the suffering that we give rise to for ourselves comes from the mind. It doesn't come from the body. The body experiences pleasure and pain and so on. But all of our preparation about it is what makes it far worse. So it's really important to experientially know the difference between mind and body. And that's really where the whole thing starts. One very concrete example of this I can give you from our local Buddhist centre here was we did a meditation course and the homework that we set for people was go away and try and have the whole of your experience. We did some work around the body and the mind and the traditional division. And a man came back the next week. It was so beautiful. He said every day he goes downstairs, he starts work at 6.30 in the morning or something. And he goes downstairs at 6 and he has a cup of coffee in his kitchen and he looks out into his lovely garden and for the first time in 20 years, something like that, he looked out one day and noticed the birds 
in the green. He just looks at the green usually and doesn't really take it in. But this time he noticed the birds. But what he described was the relaxation in his body. When he finally noticed this, his whole body relaxed and he felt completely blissed out. He wasn't meditating. He wasn't doing anything. He was just having his experience. And it was interesting that he moved from sight, a sense to his physical experience of relaxation and peace in a way. It was very strong because sometimes I suppose you can hear this kind of evocation and it sounds a bit abstract. But actually, if you're doing the practice, that's the experience is it's actually, it's good for you. It helps. It's very beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good example. And that's what it's all about. It's about being in our experience, whatever that experience happens to be. Tejananda, you're putting a big emphasis on embodiment and somatic approach to meditation. And when it comes to positive emotion, I'm sure most of us, when we're taught loving kindness meditation, you know, we're told to repeat phrases, may you be well, may you be happy, mm. or imagine certain things. So I'm very curious about how you would teach positive emotion from a somatic perspective. Really, we often talk about metta and the other qualities of compassion and joy and equanimity as heart qualities. And that's really where the somatic aspect lies. It lies in becoming aware of the heart. So everything that people have done in order to evoke metta, whether it's using the imagination, whether it's using the traditional phrases or you know, whatever people do, all of that is relevant because that's where it starts. And we have to start somewhere. Yeah, so we do start from concepts and from the imagination. But there comes a point in which we can start to explore it in terms of the soma, in terms of our living experience of our body and being. And the heart centre is what we're going to be exploring in this respect. It's quite interesting that for some people, it seems quite natural for metta to arise from or somehow be related to enlivening the heart. For other people, that's not the case at all. But I think if we can just explore the heart as part of the body, as part of the soma, not so much what we conceive as the physical body, you know, made of muscles and bones and stuff, but something rather more subtle in our experience of the body. And we will be going into this at the integration stage. You're just getting a more subtle sense of what the body is experientially. So we're then going into a more subtle experience of different parts of the body. I will bring awareness to, for instance, the lower abdomen which I often refer to as the hara. That's something which we will focus on under integration. But then the heart centre is also really, really important. And basically, there are three main centres of the body that I'm going to bring focus onto, so that the hara, the lower abdomen, the heart, and the head, the head centre, which is the head, not as where I am thinking, but actually the somatic head, the experiential head. So in terms of the meta or positive emotion, it's exploring the heart and then seeing what we discover simply by going into the heart, then opening to meta. For some people, bringing awareness to the heart is enough. Your meta is just there. But for other people, a little bit of kind of cultivation is needed to bring out the meta. And again, we teach meta in terms of five stages. Those stages, again, they're really, really helpful. They're really, really important that people engage with those stages. And I don't know if we'll have time, but there are various ways in which I do like to explore the stages with people. But primarily in terms of the integrated mandala, it's a one-stage metabhavana. And that one stage is what in the version that we do is the end of the final stage in which it's simply the unlimited radiation of meta. So we're going to be discovering the heart, but we're also going to be discovering something about the limits or the lack of limits of our body as well. I mean, this might sound a bit mad if you haven't actually gone into it meditatively, but we will get the basics of this under integration. We'll continue it with positive emotion and we'll go into it more in the spiritual death aspect. So, you know, basically that's it. It's going into the soma, going into the heart. You mentioned their spiritual death, Tejananda, and, you know, someone who teaches at Buddhist centres, I've often encountered people when they hear the phrase spiritual death, that is actually a fear response. It's like, that's not what they signed up for when they came along to the nice, mindful, peaceful Buddhist centre. So give us a little primer on what spiritual death means, I suppose, again, experientially in terms of the body, but also why it's not something to be afraid of. 
it's not something to be afraid of, but it can be very, very challenging because at this point, we're moving from the cultivation of qualities such as mindfulness and positive emotion into insight practice. And insight practice is about seeing how it actually is, how things actually are. Yeah. So it's quite clear in terms of Buddhist teaching or the Buddha's teaching that the qualities that we're cultivating in the mindfulness of breathing and the metabhavana were around before the time of the Buddha. But what makes the Buddha's teaching, I wouldn't say unique, but special, is that he woke up. Well, what he basically woke up from was suffering. So this is the way in which he spoke about his teaching. The most sort of encapsulated way he talked about it was, my teaching is suffering, dukkha, and the cessation of suffering, which is a summary of the Four Noble Truths, which was one of the Buddha's most important teachings. So it's about suffering and the cessation of suffering. And just to be clear, the suffering which he's talking about is that which we add to the suffering that can't be avoided. We can't avoid disease, we can't avoid pain, we can't avoid old age, we can't avoid death. Nobody can avoid death, which is a very, very salutary reflection. And that in itself is an insight reflection. We can't avoid those. But what we can avoid, or if you like, what we can see through, is our very deeply held responses to those, which just make the whole thing a whole lot worse. And that's all of our anxiety and proliferation and so on and so forth. So the purpose of spiritual death practice, this is a term that Sankrashta used, more generally spoken of as insight practice, is to look at our experience in terms of, well, is it what we think it is? Now, there are many, many kinds of insight practice. And obviously, I'm going to take a particular approach on this retreat. And as I've said already, it's going to be a somatic approach. So one way of looking at this is that we do feel separate. And you have the feeling of being a separate self in here as over and against the world out there. The world out there can be attractive or it can be terrifying. We have these emotional responses to it. So what we're looking at is the whole thing of, somatically speaking, in terms of our experience, is there actually an inside and an outside? Is there a separate me in here and a separate world out there? So the basic proposition, which the Buddha was putting, is that there is no such separation. You know, there's no separate me in here and a separate world out there. And we can resolve that apparent dichotomy. You know, so that's basically the way in which I'm going to be approaching spiritual death. By the way, spiritual death, a lot of people find that a rather difficult term. Well, you alluded to that, Chandradasa, but some people don't particularly like it. But I do actually like it because the question is, what dies? And I think that is really important to get that clear. What dies, so to speak, is an aspect of our delusion about how things are. So insight getting an insight, you could say, is seeing through some delusion or illusion that we're holding on to. And it's always an illusion which gives rise to suffering in one way or another. So that's what a spiritual death is. It's seeing through something which is causing us suffering. And that can happen in terms of there's just a moment of opening. It just arises. There's just a moment of insight and we see things more clearly. But the more we practice, insight practice, the more you could say that those delusions are finally really laid to rest. And it's just like they stop arising. And at that point, well, at that point, there's less suffering, there's less dukkha. So that's how I understand spiritual death. How we give rise to the belief in being a separate entity. One very big way is in terms of, well, I am here in my body, or my body is what I am. Because I'm here inside this envelope of skin, so to speak, I'm separate from everything that's outside of it. Now, what we're going to be exploring is somatically the nature of our body experience and seeing if we can discover that it actually is, what can I say? I often talk about the somatic cloud, the cloud of body experiences. and it's necessary that we build up to this because it's not always obvious straight away, but in going into our experience of the body, we can discover that it's basically full of sensations and energies, movements. And once we can get a sense of that, we can begin to actually experience our body in a different way. So we're going to be exploring it in that kind of way and seeing on that basis 
whether the kind of fixed ideas we have about there being the world out there versus me in here, whether that really stands up in our experience. That's the somatic approach to it that I'm going to be using. It occurs to me listening to that very, I think, beautiful evocation of why spiritual death is a sort of almost key stage in this, is that we're already in the realm where people are being invited to go and live inside a metaphor or an image that's alive. It's not abstract. It's something that will actually impact their experience. So it's that question of what dies. Well, it's what we bring to the party that causes suffering that dies away. And of course, that sets us up rather beautifully for what comes next in the mandala, in the image that we're going to live inside, the metaphor that we're living inside, which is spiritual rebirth. And I guess for most people, that probably sounds at least a little bit more positive than spiritual death when they first hear it. Yeah, maybe it does. I'm sorry to say that there's no spiritual rebirth without spiritual death. Well, I'm not sorry to say it, actually, because that's just how it is. Again, I need to explain how I'm going to be conceiving spiritual rebirth in terms of the dynamic mandala. And that is that it follows on, you could almost say automatically, from a spiritual death. So in other words, I was just saying that when we actually see through a delusion, whether it's temporarily or permanently, so to speak, that delusion is potentially gone. It's like there's a direct seeing that what I believe to be the case, such as I'm a separate me in here, just isn't the case. Now, that is the spiritual death the delusion is seen through. And there's an immediate kind of corollary to that, which is that we now see things in a completely fresh way. You know, it's not that we suddenly see lights and colours and angels and God knows what. It's simply that we're seeing our ordinary experience with, well, you could say with fresh eyes, but not just fresh eyes, but all of the senses are fresh because they're no longer coloured by this particular deluded belief. And even if it's only a glimpse of insight, there's still that kind of sense of opening to life in a completely new way. Very often people who come on retreats begin to get glimpses of this, because I know it from my own experience before I lived at Vajraloka, if I went on retreat, there would come a point at which things were just much brighter, much clearer. I could take interest in, say, a stone or a bit of moss, just sort of be thoroughly absorbed in very ordinary things. So it's the same also with, of course, our experience of our own being. We become much more present to it, and we see it in a completely fresh way if we're not feeling the sense of separation, well, of course, what's happening? We're feeling more connected. We're feeling more whole. We're feeling more complete, you could say. So that is a way in which I talk about spiritual rebirth. The question arises, how do we actually deal with this in terms of the dynamic mandala, in terms of the practices that we're doing? And my approach is mainly to emphasize what we need to see through, because that's something we can actually do. The spiritual rebirth aspect is not something that we can do. It's something which you could say arises spontaneously because of the practice that we've been doing. It's not something that I can make happen. Because in a way, the I that I believe I am, well, it's not ultimately real. It's just thoughts that I have about what I think I am. If I see through that, then there's suddenly a clarity about things, which is wonderful. But at the same time, it's not something that I, you know, the limited me or the conceptual me can make happen. So there's just this opening out into, well, this is how it is. Sadly, I can't give people a practice to do that, except that all the practices that we've introduced so far in terms of integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, they all are relevant to that happening. That's one way in which I'm looking at spiritual rebirth. But there's another aspect, which is, okay, let's say a delusion has dropped away. Okay, there is an opening to how things are. When that happens, things can be very, very sort of blissful. People could easily think that they're enlightened at this point. And then life continues, stuff happens, and suddenly you find that, oh, I seem to be in bad mental states again. This is very, very salutary in Dharma practice, it's that we open out and we've really seen something. There really has been an opening, but it's not like we've suddenly become a Buddha. Far from it. It's easy to suppose that at the time, but it's not the case. So there's a book about this by Jack Cornfield called After the Asti the Laundry. I would recommend that book. It does go into a really unavoidable aspect of spiritual rebirth, which is basically when the crap hits the fan. 
And in one way or another, that is going to happen. We have got these, what are technically called the cloutures, which means the afflictions, craving, aversion, delusion, pride, jealousy, and so on and so on. These are the negative emotions, which even though we've had some glimpse of insight, they're still very much, thank you very much, but I'm going to continue to happen. So that is an aspect of spiritual rebirth. It's actually dealing with our negative emotions. Again, I will go into that a bit when we come on to it. So I suppose, Tejananda, given that you are identifying this very practical aspect of spiritual rebirth, which is after the embodied mental joy, there is also the arising of normal life and mm. the need to really sustain something. Already the horizon is receding in a way, and that highlights the importance of the next stage, which is around really taking this in deeply, spiritual receptivity, it becoming an aspect of our being rather than something we're doing. In terms of the mandala, receptivity is in the centre. So it's the point at which you could say it's all been said and done. There's nothing more to say or do. You're simply opening to what's here. When we do the practice of just sitting, what's here, if you just sit down and just sit, what you find is what's here. And generally what's here is just a load of mental stuff going on, a lot of proliferation, just the usual stuff except that you're becoming aware of it. And that is really, really important. That's why it's valuable to just sit at the beginning of a practice, just to get a sense of how things are. And I always encourage people to do that. Then, obviously, we have to engage in some kind of cultivation in relation to what's going on. You know, if we're feeling any kind of negativity, we might cultivate metta. If we want to settle the mind, we'll cultivate mindfulness of breathing and so forth. So there's a bhavana aspect and an abhavana aspect, non-cultivation of all of these. The bhavana aspect is what we're doing in the practice. The non-bhavana aspect, the non-cultivated aspect, is simply letting go and being in the centre of the mandala. So there's a way in which each of these four principles that we've talked about so far, integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, they're all directly in relation to the centre of the mandala. In other words, you can go from integration directly into the centre of the mandala or from positive emotion and so on. All of them have a direct way into the centre of the mandala. And there, in the centre of the mandala, we're simply being. We're no longer doing anything. If we're entering into the centre of the mandala from the perspective of basic presence, then the mind is going to be relatively quiet. There's no longer any hindrances going on. And we can simply open to what's there. Now, what is there? Or basically, it can be anything, anything that's happening. But another way of looking at it is that we're opening to a much more subtle quality, which is present in our being, or you could say present to our being, which is awareness, awareness itself. And if we're entering that from the perspective of having integrated all of those qualities, including spiritual rebirth, we're opening to awareness just as it is, not as something which is a quality of my own being, but something which is, if you like, it just is. It's a direct opening to, potentially, to the awakened mind, to Buddha mind. So it can be anything, actually. The centre of the mandala can be anything from gross proliferation through to full awakening. And again, when I say full awakening, please understand, I don't mean that you're a Buddha already. It's simply that there can be glimpses. Awakening or the awakened state is not something separate from what we are, even though it's covered up by what the Buddha called adventitious defilements. So the negative emotions are extraneous to our true nature. Our true nature, you could say, is awake. Or the nature of things as they are is already awake. We're just not awake to it. So that's what can happen potentially when we come into the centre, into receptivity. It's also been talked of as Dharma receptivity. And you could say at that point, it's like you're seeing directly and non-conceptually the truth of the Dharma. It's not something which is put into words. It's not some sort of reference to a Buddhist text. It's your immediate direct experience of how it actually is. 
It just occurs to me listening to that, in some ways that's the most complex bit of making explicit a kind of thinking about practice. And it might even be intimidating for people to think about the idea that they are capable of that. So I'm wondering if you can say something about the bodily experience of that, again, this kind of somatic approach. How is that experienced in the body as a practice or what is it one's doing in a practice and how does it feel as a human being, as it were, to be engaging with that? Insofar as everything that we've done so far is an embodied approach, we're going to be experiencing the body in quite a different way to our usual experience. We're not going to be layering loads and loads of concepts onto it. It's simply going to be what it is. So you could say that from that perspective, what you have somatically in the centre of the mandala would be a state of complete openness and connection. There would basically be no sense of separation. So stuff is happening. There's still sounds happening. There's still sights and so forth. But somatically, we're just completely open. And it's almost like we are permeable. Our body is permeable. Or transparent is another way. It's very difficult to talk about this without making it sound kind of very esoteric. But actually, it's absolutely dead simple. In fact, it is ultimate simplicity. I think that's why it's so complex to talk about. You're trying to explain ultimate simplicity in conceptual terms, when actually what we're talking about is, it's not even non-conceptuality, because concepts might be happening, but it's like nothing gets in the way of anything else. And that's kind of what I mean by a state of openness. Openness also relates to the word receptivity. Whatever is arising, it's just received, but it's not kind of stickily held onto, or it's not pushed away. There's a flow. That's another way in which Sometimes it's spoken of. It's a state of flow. We've got to do the last bit now, which is after the ecstasy of the laundry. What happens after the wonders of your retreat fade from people's minds? How does this practice get made part of our lives, carried on through? Talk us through the closing of a retreat like this and what that opens out into. These five principles that we'll be exploring, probably most people who are coming onto this retreat will be exploring them already. That exploration continues. I would very much recommend that people continue doing the practices that they've been doing already in terms of mindfulness of breathing and metabhavana, the other qualities of compassion and joy and so forth, and some aspects of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth work. So all of that will continue but hopefully be informed by these more somatic perspectives that I'm going to bring into them. Moreover, these five aspects, they do all pertain to our whole lives. So how can we live our life? How can we relate to people in a more integrated and present way? How can we have that basic presence in relation to our communication, in relation to others? How can we relate to others in terms of meta and compassion. All of these are relevant to these principles. How can I live my life in a way which enables me to move towards seeing through my delusions rather than continuing to build them up, which of course is what we're tending to do all the time. So I suppose above all, talking about the centre of the mandala, receptivity, how can I just let go and be? You can't let go and be all the time because if you're just being, you're not going to be doing any doing. But it's just like this is something of the dynamic of the mandala of practices. There is this dynamic relationship between being and doing, doing and being. So at times, it's really, really important to allow yourself to just be. Personally, that's the area of spiritual practice that I find kind of difficult. It's easier to do when it comes to meditation. It's easier to kind of work with the doing end of things, you know, Mm. cultivating things. And I know what you said about simplicity. It makes sense. It's hard to talk about. And in some ways, this is entirely true, but maybe it's about trusting. You have to get to a certain point where you feel like you can trust that you will open up into something rather than maybe I'm just telling you my temperament, which is maybe leaning towards nihilism. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing there. But yeah, there's something about faith, I guess. Yeah. If that's something that you would be bringing into the mandala, faith, when you talk about receptivity. Yeah, very, very definitely so. You could say if you're just sitting, just, just sitting, there would be a strong confidence. And that would be another way of talking about faith. All of these areas involve faith in the Buddhist sense, Shraddha, which is confidence and trust. And that kind of builds up as we go through the dynamic of the mandala. So when it comes to the centre, 
well, ideally, there's just a sense of strong confidence. In a way, it's just like, I'm entitled to be here. That's what it's pointing to. And there we're opening to, the heart is opening to all the qualities of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you could say. But we're not doing it in a volitional way. It's more like we're just sort of allowing that to imbue us. As soon as you start doing it in a volitional way, it becomes something that I am doing. But in this kind of simply being, pure awareness is another way in which it's spoken of. Yeah, it is a state of complete confidence. And you could say, if you translate that into words, it's complete confidence in the Dharma. It's like the Dharma is really living through us. I was going to say, Tejadanta, that I hope that this is something that arises for people in some measure through engaging with your home retreat. But actually, having listened to you, I've got faith that it will for some people, because as you point out, in a way, it just comes back to that simple thing of if you can be present and let the Dharma work through you, let it arise, all will be well. All manner of things will be well. It's very beautiful. So return, sort of coming home at the end of the journey through the mandala. So I'm very grateful for your time today just to evoke that for us. Thank you to Aparajita for braving the wilds of online media to come and help us have the conversation with Tejananda. Looking forward to your support through the home retreat itself. No, it's been very good. Not too traumatic. Thank you. It's great to hear Tejananda speak about this material. The net effect on me is also faith, confidence, and uncharacteristic sort of desire to want to engage with meditation, which of course I'll resist heartily, but it's nice to have that at least desire at present. Thank you very mm. much. And thanks to you too, Stasihi, the thoughtfulness you bring to this kind of material and the sort of fierce passion of engaging with your own mind. It made me laugh there to hear you acknowledge your temperament, but also see the strength of your temperament when it comes to having the fuel you need to work with this kind of stuff. Thanks, Chandrasa. I'm in danger of outing myself publicly all the time. But anyway, <laughs> thanks. I really appreciated the conversation. And yeah, just hearing a bit more about your inspiration as well, Tejananda. It's actually very inspiring and confidence building to hear someone talk so passionately about what they stand on. So thanks for that. And of course, Tejananda, thanks to you too for taking time out of your teaching schedule and also your life in lockdown. Not just to talk to us today, but actually to really hold in awareness this retreat that's coming up and to make your heart, your whole heart available for everybody. It's quite moving. Well, it's a pleasure and it really is a privilege to be able to share something of what I've learnt of meditation and the Dharma. So thanks for the opportunity. If you want to take part in the home retreat, meditating in the mandala, an embodied approach to awakening, led so beautifully, so ably by Tejananda, it begins on Friday the 12th of June, and there will be a live meditation every day. We'll put up on the website soon the timings in your local time zone. I can tell you that it's at 11am Eastern Standard Time, where I live. It's at 4pm, where Aparajita, Staisihi and Tejananda live in Ireland and the UK and that will translate into various other times which you may already be aware of but yeah join us on Zoom to just take part in a retreat with other people just be embodied together. Tejananda's got a lovely warm structure for the way he does these sessions and it really does feel of the nature of an invitation as they tend to say of the Dharma itself. You're welcome in the space with us to just practice together just to be aware together and work on this knowing that it opens out at the other end into life itself. And for those of you who can't make those sessions, we'll do our best to provide something of the same resource and structure on the page itself. There'll be downloadable meditations, little bits of teaching each day to help orient you if that's all you've got time for with work and the kids and all the rest of what may be going on for you in the lockdown. Either way, however you engage, you're warmly invited to connect with us. In the meantime, you can keep meditating with us. I was going to say every day, but it's not quite every day on the Buddhist Centre Online. From the 8th of June, you'll be able to meditate with us six days a week, three times a day online. And if you haven't signed up for our email newsletter, go to thebuddhistcentre.com slash toolkit and you'll find there an easy sign up form and also details of the forthcoming retreats. We promise we won't bombard you with email. We won't sell your data to anybody. We're kind of the opposite of all that here, which is very nice to be able to say. In the meantime, we hope you're well. We hope you stay safe and sound and can find your own equilibrium amongst the various upheavals that are going on around us in the world. We'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. We'll be here for meditation each day and we hope to see you on the home retreat from Friday the 12th of June. In the meantime, take care. Bye for now.